Nobody likes this side. Welcome everyone to Bible class and welcome to our listeners on KFUO as we continue our study of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 20. 20. Very appropriate verses, as you will see, for Reformation. The first verse sounds kind of disjointed for not without an oath. So, not without an oath. Now, that's a double negative, so it means with an oath. All right? But then it says, the priests who were made priests uh, were without an oath. They were made priests without an oath. So what he's going to do here is draw a distinction between Jesus and the priests. Now, the priests um, did not take an oath of office. You know, we're, we're used to that. Whenever uh, in our society you take an office, you take an oath of office, okay? The priests then did not because they were priests because they were from the line of Levi. It was uh, their genealogy. And they were ordained priests, but they never took an oath of office. They never took an oath of office. But then it says, but with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. All right, so there's an oath when Jesus Christ is the high priest, but Jesus Christ is not the one that takes the oath. The Father swears You are a priest forever, and he will not change his mind. All right? So his priesthood is not based upon genealogy, and it's not based upon taking an oath. The Father, the Lord of all, is the one who takes the oath. You are a priest forever. And he does not change his mind. He does not change his mind. In other words, Jesus Christ is now the high priest forever. Forever. 
And then the next verse is very important, especially on Reformation Day. For Jesus, then, is the um, security, guarantee of a better covenant. Now, we need to talk about this for a while. Whenever you made a covenant with someone, you had to put something up. A guarantee, a surety. When you buy a house, when you sign the contract, you have to put down earnest money. Okay? It's just part of making a contract. But to understand this particular verse, we have to go back and compare it because it says a better covenant, which means there was a covenant to start, but now there's a better one. And the covenant that is being referred to is the covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament. All right? In the Old Testament. That covenant was a bilateral covenant. God promised the children of Israel that he would be their God and that they would have limited access to him through the Levitical priests and the sacrificial system and that he would be their God, take care of them, he had already brought them out of Egypt, but he would supply for them in the wilderness, and he would give them the promised land. That was his part of the deal. The other part was that the children of Israel should be obedient to God. Should be obedient to God. It was to flow from the faith they had in God. Now, he had given them plenty of opportunity to see on this Sunday the wonders he had done in the crossing of the Red Sea. Even before that, the plagues providing water and food in the wilderness, taking them safely to the promised land and giving them the promised land and giving them victory over their enemies. What had Israel done? They had seen all these wonders and been nothing but rebellious and disobedient, faithless, no faith, no obedience. So, they doubted, after, even after he, they saw him part the sea, they doubted he could provide them water. They doubted he could provide them food. They doubted that they could take the promised land. They sent the spies. Spies came back, we can't do this. They doubted that. They stayed in the wilderness 40 years. When he finally brought them out, 
the river Jordan parted for them, took them into the promised land. They won the battles. They took the land. They didn't take all of it as they were supposed to. God kept his promises to them, and they rebelled against him and were faithless. Now God is saying, there is a better covenant. Now this covenant is not going to be bilateral. This covenant is totally God's doing. The guarantee for this covenant is Jesus. The security for this covenant is Jesus. And as we'll read in chapter 9, his body and blood. The surety for the covenant. So that this covenant he has made with us. A better covenant. And it's totally dependent on God's promises and Jesus Christ. And it has absolutely nothing to do with us. We don't contribute anything to this covenant. It is God saying, I'm going to do this for you through my son, Jesus Christ. You, there's nothing mentioned about what we have to do in this covenant. And that's the gospel. That's what we celebrate on Reformation Day. Because in the church at Luther's time, things had become so heavily dependent upon the person and what they were to do and how they were to earn righteousness, become righteous. As Pastor Thomas said uh, this morning, through infused grace, okay, to make yourself acceptable to God. And it was all on you. And this is why Luther went through such horrible times trying to make himself acceptable to God. Because the question anytime you're doing that is this, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Am I there yet? Am I now righteous before God? Have I done enough? And the answer is always no. The answer is always no. There is no comfort, absolutely no comfort, no peace, no joy, nothing. 
And you're never righteous before God because the weight of your sin is much more than what you think you're doing is good. It never offsets your sin because your sin goes to the heart. It is a sinful heart. Okay? It is a rebellious heart towards God. And outward works do, do not change that. This new covenant is totally based on Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. There we find the comfort, because it's outside of us. There we find the comfort in what he's done. We find the comfort in his perfection, keeping the law. We find the comfort in his cross death, and resurrection. And there we find comfort, and we find peace, and we find joy. And this is the better covenant that God is talking about, because it does not depend on us does not depend on us. Therefore, we can look to God with confidence that we are righteous before him in Christ's righteousness, not our own, in Christ's righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. Okay? He sees Jesus Christ. This is the better covenant. Now, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to use this word. He's going to talk about better covenant. He's going to talk about better sacrifice. Whenever he brings up this new covenant, he uses the word better. Better. And he uses that word several times in the coming chapters. It's better. Okay? So, now... We can have that comfort. We can have that comfort uh, in Jesus Christ. He is the guarantee. He's the down payment. He has made it possible for us. Okay. Then we go on. Okay. It says the former priests were many, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So what you had was earthly, sinful, weak priests who died. It was a revolving door of priests. Okay. Death prevented them from holding office. But he holds his priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. This goes all the way back to when God promised David in 2 Samuel that your line will continue forever. And the only way a line can continue forever is one of that line is eternal. And that was the Son of God, born of Mary, the line, David. He's going to reign forever. So you remember in the Old Testament, you, you've read Genesis and then you, you start in Exodus and it says there was a new Pharaoh and he did not know Joseph. And everything changes. When your ability to have access to God is dependent on a human, weak, dying priest, how much confidence you got? Who's going to change next week? But now our priest, our high priest, is permanent. He does not change. He doesn't go away. Death has no power over him. He holds the priestly office forever. And because of this, he is able to save completely. That's what the words say. Completely. In other words, there's nothing left out. It is total salvation. Everything has been accomplished. There is nothing lacking. Nothing lacking. He has done it. Okay? He has done it. Those who draw near to God through him, to save completely those who draw near to God through him. What's the only way to draw near to God? Through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to come to God. There is no access to God apart from Jesus Christ. Okay? Since he always lives, he's always living to make intercession for them. Because he's always there, always praying for us, to the Father. And it never stops. And it never will. And it never will. Because he is the eternal high priest. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and then he gives them him several titles. First one, most translations say holy. Uh, it may be translated better, devout. Because human beings are not devout to God. The children of Israel were not devout. You're not devout. Some days you feel very close to God and you're praying to God and you're 
you're there. Other days, you ignore it. Okay? Some days you strive to do His will. Other days, you do what you want to. The word devout does not apply to us, but it applies to Jesus Christ. Okay? Innocent. It actually says without evil. No evil. There is no evil in him. Without evil. The next one, unstained or undefiled. Evil has not touched him. Sin has not touched him. He is without the stain of sin. He's separated from sinners. He is apart from them. He doesn't sin with them, and he doesn't take part in their sin, nor is he complacent to sin, nor is he one who condones sin and is exalted above the heavens. Okay? So devout, without evil, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Okay? He's not like an earthly priest. The priests had certain, the law was written so that the priests had to offer certain sacrifices for themselves to be acceptable to offer sacrifices for all the people. That is not the case with Jesus. In other words, they were sinful themselves. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Okay? But it's different because then it says, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. He offered only one sacrifice, and it wasn't for him, it was for all of us. And it's once and for all. We do not believe in the re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you say, who in the world does? The Roman Catholic Church. Because every time they say a mass, they call it a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is being re-sacrificed. And that's what Luther found so abhorrent because of this very passage. 
Jesus' sacrifice on the cross of Calvary was absolutely perfect. That's why he said the words, it is finished, it is accomplished. Because everything that was necessary for our salvation had been done. There was nothing lacking. The minute you talk about something being lacking, we are quick to say, well, we must have to do something, which is not true. His sacrifice was perfect, and it was perfectly acceptable to God. God didn't say, I accept your sacrifice, but you still need to do this, this, and this. It was perfect. And it was done once, and it does not need to be done again in any way, shape, or form. It's been accomplished. That's what gives us the comfort, because we didn't do it. He did it, and he did it perfectly. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Okay. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, the word of the oath is God's oath. I swear appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay? Forever. Now, the author's not quite done with the priesthood. Okay? There's more. And this actually continues over in chapter 9 and 10. Okay? Continues over. Because this is the key point of the book. If you want to summarize Hebrews, it's that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Okay? That would be a summary. So, verse uh, chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. The Greek word actually means the most important point is this. Okay? Most important point is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Okay. He's seated at the right hand of God, which means he's been accepted by God. Now, you should not view this as there's a big throne and there's a big chair for the Father and then there's a little chair on the right hand and Jesus sits there. No, this is the same throne, okay? The same throne, all right? Same throne. And notice of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. All right, now, we're going to 
get into a section here, extends into chapter 9, and we are, it's recalling for us the tent. Now, what's been referred, what's it referring to is the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle that was built by Moses' direction to be the dwelling place of God's presence. For when the ark was in the Holy of Holies, and the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire descended on it, God was there. The place of his abiding. Okay? The place of his abiding. Notice a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There's going to be a parallel of two tents. The one on earth was made by Moses and the children of Israel, but then the tent that God set up is in heaven. Okay? That one was set up by God, not man. Now, just hold on. We're going to get there. As he's going to explain this. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the Levitical priests, they were called on, appointed to offer gifts and offerings. When it says this priest, it's referring to Christ. He must have something to offer. What did he offer? Himself. Okay? He offered himself. He must have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He was not a priest according to the law. He was not a priest according to the law. Therefore, by sheer definition, when he was on earth, he wasn't a priest. By the strict reading of the Levitical laws, he wasn't a priest. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right. So here's what we have. There's a tent in heaven that's been sent up, set up by God. The tent on earth would be constructed by Moses and the Israelites. But the one on earth would be a 
poppy and a shadow of the one in heaven. Now, in that day, copy didn't mean a Xerox machine. Okay? It mean a hand sketched copy. And copies then were always considered inferior to the real thing. A shadow is made by the sun being behind something, but depending on the angles, it could be larger, smaller. It's a shadow. It's not the real thing. So what Moses and the Israelites set up on earth was a copy and a shadow of what God set up in heaven. Moses was shown this on the mountain. Remember, he was there for days. He was shown this and instructed, build it like what you saw. Okay? But the one in heaven is perfect. The one on earth is a copy, a shadow. Okay? Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, and it says better, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Okay? All right, so the Levitical priests were at service at the altar in a copy and shadow of what God has set up in heaven. Jesus Christ is the high priest of what is set up in heaven, in what the Lord has built. What is in heaven is much more excellent than what is on earth. And notice he is the mediator. If you get technical about it, Moses was a mediator between God and the people. Remember when God came on Mount Sinai and spoke and the people said, we don't want to hear this. Let him tell you and you tell us because we don't want to hear the voice of God. Terrified them. So he was the mediator. In uh, another respect, the priests were, a, were mediators before the presence of God. Now there is a new mediator. And it is not a human being. It is Jesus Christ. It's a better covenant because it is based on better promises. So we go back to the two covenants. The first covenant was a bilateral covenant 
which they broke. The second covenant is based entirely upon the promises of God. Therefore, it is not dependent on us. Therefore, it's better than the first one. Okay? It's better than the first one. And then, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant had been faultless, a second covenant wouldn't have been necessary. God kept his part of the first covenant, but the people did not. They were rebellious and faithless. So, there was a second covenant given to us based upon Jesus Christ as the guarantee and as the mediator. For he finds fault with them when he says... now. What we're about to read is a section from Jeremiah, chapter 31, okay, 31 to 34. It's a description of the new covenant that was already given by God in the Old Testament. It's a rehearsal of what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. These are God's words in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. New means unheard of, okay? It's not based on the old one. It's not like the old one. It is a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Then he says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, that's the first covenant. I will be your God, you shall be my people. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They broke the first covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make. This is the new one with the house of Israel. After those days, declared the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, 
Now here's the basis of the new covenant. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. I made a covenant with them. They broke it. I'm making a new covenant. And it is the forgiveness of sins. Okay? A brand new covenant. And then he closes with the words, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, okay? Or in vain or futile. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The words imply it's like an old man and he's getting older, he can't do what he used to do, and he's just going to go away. Ever feel like that, guys? And, and so um, then the new one is there. The new one is there that God has made with Jesus Christ as the guarantee, as the eternal high priest, and as the mediator of a better covenant. And that's certainly what Reformation Day is all about. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, the gospel. All right, a few minutes for questions. Dave. Yeah. The question is, how can you have a better covenant if it's from God? Well, it's better because the Israelites broke the first one. God didn't break it. They broke it. The new covenant, God doesn't even factor us in the equation. It's all Him. So it's better then part of the covenant relying on us, it only relies on him. Okay. And in that way, it's better. That way, it's better. Other questions? Yes, Bob? Is this uh, You know, the old covenant um, they saw God's wonders. And that was to work the faith in their hearts. Okay? I would say what it's talking about here is more the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't around for the first covenant, but the Holy Spirit is going to put these things in the hearts of people. What he worked in the hearts of the people and the children of Israel, I can't say for sure. Certainly, 
all God tried to do was so they would have faith, so the Spirit would work faith in them. But um, your access to God was not determined by you. It was determined by those that interceded for you, which were the priests. Now everyone has an individual relationship with God. I did my uh, doctoral work on the matter of how do you preach law and gospel in an individualistic culture. You've got to remember that at that time it was a corporate culture. The church was right with God, so if you're a member of the church, you're included. Martin Luther is sometimes called the father of individualism because he brought the emphasis that it's what's in the individual's heart that makes the difference. The individual's heart. What's being said here is, it's the individual. God is going to work in the individual. Exactly how he does that, we know it's by the Holy Spirit, but we probably can't define it anymore. But it's certainly an emphasis on the individual and God working within the hearts of individuals. How he did that with the children of Israel, I don't know. Yes. Well, yes, we believe in, from Romans, we believe in what's called the natural knowledge of God. That there is a natural knowledge of God by looking at the universe, by looking at the creation, something tells you there is a God that did this. We believe in that. The scriptures teach that. But by studying creation, you don't learn that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. Natural knowledge of God is not sufficient we need the revealed knowledge of God, which is only in the Word of God. And the Word may be key to this, Bob, that the Word of God would work this in their hearts. In their hearts. Okay. So in this new covenant, God's going to work in the hearts of people, bring them to faith, and their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be forgiven. Yes, Dave? Yeah. High priest. No. No. He was not the high, he was He was uh, the Son of God. He was declared the high priest by God when he rose from the dead. 
we want to get specific, when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Then God made the decree. Yeah. All right, anything else? Well, I, what are they thinking about? The Roman Catholic Church is what's called sacerdotalism, which means you only have access to God through the priest. You only have access to God through the priest. And he is the one that makes that possible for you to have the sacraments. Uh, God comes to him, and then he brings them to you. Okay? The re-sacrifice of Christ is that, you know, if, if you want a mass said for someone who's already died, then the point is uh, that Christ's sacrifice is for them to get them into heaven. But we say that's already happened. Okay? That's already happened. It was gone. And of course, it continued for a number of years yet until Rome destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And then uh, that was the end of the sacrificial system because it had to be sacrificed there. All right. Well, we'll pick up at 9 next week. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.